Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in technology, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trond Arne Undheim, futurist and author. In episode 41 of the podcast, the topic is the future of cryptocurrency. Our guest is Ryan Selkis, founder and CEO of Misari, the crypto economy analyst firm. In this conversation, we talk about what cryptocurrency is in its simplest terms, what's next in terms of adoption, and where we are going in the next decade. Quick word from our sponsor. Do you have business challenges where you would like high-quality external input from experts? Yegi is an insight network with access to on-demand teams made up of select talent from thousands of experts. Check out Yegi at archives.yegi.com. That's Y-E-G-I-I. Ryan, how are you today? Great, man. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's an awesome day to discuss the future of cryptocurrency, don't you think? It's always a good day to do that, especially this year. (laughs) Yes. Well, so the the big thing that I wanted to dive into, which we're going to do in a second, uh, you know, is kind of when is this thing going mainstream, and and or or is it ever? So you can ponder your. Very clear answer on that, and hold that for a second because I I, I want to introduce the, the listeners just a little bit to you, Ryan. So you and I know each other from various sort of MIT related uh, uh, meetings and contexts. And I was digging into your bio a little bit for for this show. I mean, it's pretty clear that you know you're out there as an entrepreneur, uh, a blogger, and now uh, very much an analyst on this space. So that's that much I have gathered from your public profile. You're CEO of Missari in New York City, right? It's building a, a kind of an analyst service, an open data library for for crypto as an asset class. That much I've understood. We'll we'll talk about what that means. I have seen that you know you have been active in at least two other uh, Bitcoin ventures. Is that right? So you were uh, active in the acquisition of uh, of CoinDesk by Digital Currency Group. That much I think I read myself into. In terms of knowledge, uh, you did get a finance degree at Boston College, and then I'm a little uncertain what happened at MIT. Did you do you have this famous thing where you went on to do uh, stuff and didn't finish? There's one story online that says you didn't finish. Yes. Uh, so is that you know, true? It, it is, um, and and you're one of the few interviewers that have caught that nuance. Um, but frankly, most people don't care, right? The only thing that they care about is if you get into business school. <laughs> yeah, and look, I don't care in any particular way. I was just interested more in whether the narrative online was true yeah. about you or not. Yeah. Uh, fake it, fake it, see you make it. Ryan, my, my only reason for listing all these things is I'm always curious about when accomplished people think about their background and sort of reflect a little bit about what it is that brought them where they are. What would you say in, in kind of your trajectory is that made you kind of who you are professionally in terms of you know focusing obviously now uh, almost with some obsession I would say on on crypto, and not everybody does. How did you get there? Uh, you know, I, I would actually say, um, and, and it's funny because I, I just went back to speak at, at my alma mater, uh, Boston College, during students come back to campus. They're all on campus, but they're all virtual. So very weird dynamic where it's kind of like they're back to school, but uh, it's kind of a virtual guest speaker. Um, and, uh, and I think, you know, maybe two of the formative experiences, and this might be helpful for, for younger listeners, especially, or, or anyone that's been, you know, 
particularly disrupted by this, this virus, um, were probably both back in college. And I'd say that my the beginning of my career, which is maybe the you know, some of the most formative years in terms of getting off on the right trajectory, were largely an accident. Uh, the first was uh, I was an alternate for a an interview slot for investment banking internship at J.P. Morgan. And one of the 12 didn't bother to show up. So I was the guy at like 6.55 hitting the refresh button for when that analyst slot opened up at 7. Ended up getting the interview, getting the job, getting the job offer at the end of the, uh, the internship. By the way, that's how you knew that we were in like a, a bubble in 2007 uh, when I actually got into investment banking full-time offer. Um, and then the second was kind of the natural bookend of that in uh, summer of 2008 when said investment banking offer dematerialized and my offer was deferred because the the writing was on the wall, the things were about to get bad. Uh, of course, Lehman was a couple months later, but um, but before then, J.P. Morgan acquired Bear Stearns and they consolidated and I was one of the synergies. So I found myself without a job about two weeks before I was supposed to start uh, my, my very first job. I was very wow, this, is start, this makes a lot of sense to me now that you're moving into new finance when the old finance kind of was basically crumbling under your feet. Well, it did, but there's a silver lining because um, I, having not gone through the interview processes that previous fall, had turned down a bunch of my friends that were kind of working at other very cool companies, Bain and a firm called Summit Partners up in Boston, Capital. And I was lucky to get fast-tracked in an interview process for venture capital role. And I got into VC and, and private equity right out of school, bypassed the two years of banking. And That's you know, unusual, it's, actually. It's very unusual. And I... I pulled a rabbit out of my hat mostly because two of my other very close friends that graduated with me were accepted for the same role, and they just kind of pulled me up along with them, even though their GPAs were way higher. But I had good vouchers, which is really the only thing that matters. Uh, and I hustled uh, twice in the span of a year to, to kind of make those self-upgrade, even though I probably didn't deserve it. So that kind of set the whole tone, um, uh, not just for you know kind of putting myself you know in, in, in the right position, but you know, really uh, putting myself in a position to be lucky, which, uh, you know, there's elements of resilience there. Just kind Putting of yourself in the position to be lucky. I like that a lot. Yes. Um, and, uh, and, and it's, you know, it's a little bit cliche to hear people talk about that, but, um, you know, I, I was not top of my class at BC. I did you know, very well at BC, but, um, but was not top of my class. So you, know, you kind of have to beg, borrow and steal to, to get some of these doors open. And, um, and I think that carried over into the beginning of my time in crypto because I was coming off of a couple of years stretch where I started my first company. It didn't pan out. So I was in the process of winding it down, had gotten into MIT, but I had 10 months to go until I would have started. So not enough time to get another job. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, too much time to just kind of sit idly by. Um, I had kind of accidentally. I uh, got into Bitcoin because I purchased it, you know, in, in early fall, late summer of uh, 2013 and had to make a decision. Should I buy some more? Should I sell and kind of uh, enjoy these six times gains that, that I just, you know, kind of conjured out of thin air at the right time uh, or, or should I hold it? And in the course of doing that research, uh, I ended up writing on a daily basis and, and falling down the rabbit hole. Uh, liquidating my 401k using half to pay for rent and maybe the other half to buy more. Um, what? And ultimately, that got me in touch with everybody in the industry and, and, and kind of the rest of uh, those excellent jobs uh, were, were part of that process. Wow. Interesting. 
All right. Wow. Um, so, so here's. You didn't think we were going to start with that anecdote, did you? But, no, uh, it's like, I, oh, I, I didn't. But the thing is, I I like to get those anecdotes in because, well, you know, I didn't know you that way, and and it, it explains a little bit. It doesn't explain it all. Um, but here's here's really the question on I think a lot of people's mind right now. It's you know you were very early in to mm-hmm. crypto, and at least one of the big questions is not just is crypto going mainstream, but is it a slow or a long ascent into kind of the rest of the world? And so it's a question of timing, at least for for me, right? So on this podcast, we talked a lot about the next decade. This is not because the next, uh, you know, uh, two, three years don't matter or because, you know, the next 40 years aren't interesting, but it's just sort of an interesting context for many things, business and technology, right? Because it's long enough that you can actually see some, some change. So, so let us, um, let's start with some of your high level views, if you will, on, on some of those things. And then I want to pan it back because, not everybody on this podcast are going to be very well versed in the details of what, what we're about to talk about, you know, from stable coins to staking to a lot of these very specialty terms, specialist terms. So, but first, can I get uh, like a macro level prediction on what, what is happening to this entire space, whether it integrates with finance, whether it goes broad and goes into lots of other sectors? And, and is this a realistic picture for the next decade? I think there are two things that hook crypto assets into traditional finance uh, pretty well in, in, in the next couple of years and, and in this next market cycle in particular. Um, one is just the uh, professionalization of all things infrastructure related for Bitcoin and, and true digital asset um, protocols that are you know by default permissionless and uh, accessible to anyone on the planet. Um, and that didn't exist in the last cycle. Now you have OCC giving guidance that banks can custody crypto assets. You've got custodial solutions and software providers that have provided those institutional level tools. You've got institutional data um, uh, and, and, and similar quality products coming out that make it possible for professional investors to properly mark their books to prove best execution on behalf of their clients. Um, and, uh, and generally speaking, you, you, you've also got the resilience that comes with coming out of another multi-year bear market. And every single time Bitcoin dies gloriously, uh, like it did between end of 2017 and kind of late 2018 when it went down 85%. At the time, I was looking at those, uh, I had those graphs up for the podcast. They're, they're, they're interesting to look at. They have, uh. Yeah, they, they are. And, and there's kind of like a, a, a meme of sorts in the Bitcoin community where you know, when in doubt, zoom out. Uh, and if you look at, you know, the fact that we went down to 3000 in um, late 2018, kind of catastrophic losses if you, if you bought at the top in late 2017. Um, if you zoom out a little bit, you realize that, well, before 2017, the, the most recent high was 1000 in 2013, came all the way back. Um, down to sub 200 and then all the way back up. So it's, 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 um, it's a highly volatile asset that has moved in pretty much, uh, four year cycles since its inception. 
boom bus yeah. cycles where there's there's typically you know eighty percent plus drawdowns. Not for the faint of heart, but um, at some points it becomes a very compelling complement to gold. And the way uh, you mentioned uh, before we got on uh, my my theses that were uh, year end piece firms last year. One way that I tried to rationalize this discrepancy when you're talking about traditional investors, think about Bitcoin as digital gold that you buy almost as a warrant alongside your gold investment if you're going to make a physical gold investment. Well, all of a sudden, that that dampens that volatility pretty significantly. But as a kind of perfect substitute, the, the digital analog for traditional physical gold going into the next 10 years, that starts to make a, a heck of a lot more sense as a store of value. It's not a store of value if you think about it's going to go up 5x, it's going to go down 90%. It's going to go up 10x, it's going to go down 80%. Um, but if you think about it as, as a basket, physical and digital gold, it's, um, it, it becomes a much easier transition to see how this plays out. I was intrigued by your crypto thesis for 2020. Uh, Just out of the uh, curiosity, are you thinking of, I mean, was the feedback so good that you're thinking of making it into kind of more uh, annual type predictions? Because it it was Uh, an interesting concept. Must have been a lot of work to to write that in such a fast manner. Yeah, you you know what? um, It was, um, are you Sopranos fan? Sure. Tony Sopranos. So, so there's a scene um, after Tony gets shot and he's coming back into the fold and everybody's kind of, you know, treating him gently or whatever. And, um, yeah. and he kind of looks around for the toughest guy out of the crew and he just like, takes a swing and starts to fight with the neck. Um, so there was like a little bit of that going on in my head. You know, there's a lot of other up and coming analysts and, and there's a lot of good content. Our own team has some, some terrific analysts. And, um, you know, I just, I said, you know, I want to spend a week and a half just like prove to myself that I still got to it. see that I can still do it. Uh, yeah, I can well, do this. Well, not that I, you know, I can write, but that, that I can, I can still wrap my head around uh, the insanity that is this industry and, and all these different things. Um, and, you know, of course that's not entirely true because we, we do have a great team that was kind of fact checking and, and helping um, supplement you know, all of the work that went into that and ultimately editing it. But um, I think, uh, you know, this year, you know, we'll, we'll see uh, how much bandwidth I have. I, I I think that the rest of the team can probably take the majority of it, but you should definitely expect to see more research like that. I'm sorry. Yeah, and I well, the reason I was uh, so intrigued by it is, you know, I read Mary Meeker's internet report, and uh, there's always that one report, or there's not always, but whenever somebody captures the space like that, mm-hmm. it's uh, very, very intriguing. Someone who's very well positioned and is able to kind of take the time and really donate to the community their their entire mind download for a year's developments. For people like me who try to track, you know, ten different techno- or twenty different technologies and thirty industries, it saves a lot of uh, headache, and it's a, it's a great way to kind of clear clear my mind on the, on the day that things like that come out. So I just wanted to to sh- give a shout out to to some of those things, and we'll we'll dig into some of them. Um, can I can I ask you? So on this topic of aligning with the financial world. Mm-hmm. Uh, wh- what are the things that the community, which you just called the insanity that is this industry, um, what are the things that this community, if it still is one community, and that's a question too, I guess, are are doing now, and or 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 is it even acting as a community in in this way, kind of like taking 
concerted steps to try to become accepted or more accepted aligned with the financial world. Because what I read, and, and the reason for my question is when I was reading through your crypto thesis, there seems to me at least, and this was what? This was written in January, was it? Uh, this was December. December. There's a little bit of tension in your argument. You're sort of saying 2020 could become the breakout year for all of these different things, depending on a lot of factors. By the way, uh, you know, I don't know if you, um, I, you know, have uh, been around for the last six year, uh, months, but the, there's been a, you know, a big virus and things. So there's a lot of things that happened that did happen in 2020. But um, you seem to be kind of hedging your bet on whether the communities were willing to limit themselves to the financial community and even align with that, uh, or that they're kind of spreading around saying, hey, we can offer our services to any industry and we can do anything and we can do everything. Seems to me that there's a little bit of a crossroads in crypto right now between the careful approach, which would be, let's just make sure this works. Let's do all kinds of slow partnerships. Let's test everything. Let's not hype it up too much. Let's kind of try to work against this boom and bust cycle. And then there are these uh, mavericks and enough of them in the community saying, we don't really care. We're innovating and we're blowing everybody out of the, you know, out of the ocean. What's your take? Yeah. I mean, I I think that's the the beautiful thing uh, about permissionless open protocols, right? It, it's, it's no different from the internets. Um, and I know that uh, that's maybe a tired comparison and, and you hear people talk about that all the time. Oh, crypto is going to be as big as the internet. I happen to think that it's, it's true um, given you know, the magnitude of disruption that you know, it's already been long overdue for, for financial services and even money itself. Um, but the fact is um, you're going to have uh, slow and steady methodical builders that are thinking in decades terms. And you're going to have cowboys that are, are trying to get rich quick. They're trying to go from zero to hundred as fast as possible. Um, and, uh, and at some, at some points in time, those can be the same person too, right? Uh, there's, there's some extremely talented entrepreneurs that I think, uh, think in decades, um, when they think about this industry, but they also know that you got to strike while the iron's hot. And yeah. most of the money and momentum is made um, in the bull runs, uh, even if most of the building is done you know, during those, those periods of fallow. How about the the general? Uh, well, let's talk about the principles that are kind of at play in this uh, I, this uh, attempt to stabilize. So, stable coins, right? It's a little bit in the word. What what was the rationale for stable coins, and how do you see that panning out? Uh, so, you know, stable coins are are you know critical uh, assets, critical you know innovations within uh, the crypto economy because people don't want to spend Bitcoin, uh, they don't want to spend volatile assets. It creates tax consequences. It creates uh, this dynamic where uh, if you think the asset is going to appreciate a value by another. You know, 10 to 100x. Well, why would you ever use that to buy a good? Uh, if you knew that your dollars were going to be worth, you know, potentially 10 times more than they are today, you wouldn't buy anything this year, right? You'd save as much as, as humanly possible in this world of uh, the bare minimum that you need for sustenance. Um, and I think uh, that's uh, that's exacerbated in uh, historically 
you know, kind of exacerbated trends one way or the other uh, within Bitcoin for all these different all digital assets because um, you can't build uh, lending applications, you can't build payment applications or uh, really anything that you use money for if uh, you know that you're, you're basically only going to get a minimal amount of track, traction during like slow and steady upwards markets. If the market's declining, well, it's worse than fiat. Um, if it's hyper volatile, you know, people want to hoard it. So uh, I think uh, stable coins have, have really become like the quote currency for accessing digitally native or, 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 or crypto protocols and, and some of these uh, permissionless systems like peer-to-peer decentralized exchange or peer-to-peer lending without a middle market maker. Um, and, uh, and, and that has been uh, maybe one of the primary catalysts for, for this run itself is not having to trade in and out of Bitcoin or in and out of Ether, but being able to buy Bitcoin, borrow against it in some stable form of value, and then use that for your different applications. So that's the really, I think, the core of this whole DeFi um, boom has been centered around uh, the accessibility of, of stable assets and the ability to actually stake those and buy liquidity as part of these other financial applications. Can you just explain what you mean by DeFi boom? Because that's another term again, but decentralized finance boom. And, and what is decentralized finance in your mind vis-a-vis cryptocurrency? Is that just a synonymous term to you or is it slightly narrower? Uh, well, everybody has different definitions for this, right? So I think when, when, you know, I I think about crypto as a whole, there's, uh, there's currencies and kind of new forms of digital commodity money, like, uh, like Bitcoin, like Ethereum, uh, Zcash, Monero. Then there's at the other extreme, uh, a number of tokens that you can kind of think about almost like quasi securities or synthetic assets. You know, these are, are tokens that give some user the right to uh, basically manage or govern a portion of a decentralized protocol and also participate um, in the rewards that that protocol offers. So an example might be uh, a decentralized exchange protocol where you or I could, you know, trade on this uh, exchange like Uniswap, and uh, and basically gain access, you know, without going through a middleman or, or Coinbase or, or, or traditional exchange. You and I can just trade. We know that there's always going to be a market available to buy any of these digital assets. Well, how do you create a marketplace like that? You need market makers. How do you incentivize the market makers? In the traditional realm, that's a bunch of big pocketed investors that are going to work with the exchanges and a maker-taker relationship. And um, that doesn't exist in a permissionless system, so you have to bootstrap that liquidity side. But one way that you might incentivize that is to provide tokens um, to those market makers and, and those folks that are actually providing liquidity into that system uh, and incentivize the liquidity provisioning process of creating these new markets. Um, in return, those early investors and providers of that service are ultimately going to be able to you know, make money in the form of tokens. Those tokens, very uh, circuitously, they they basically give you the right to any um, fees that might be generated by that decentralized exchange. So mm-hmm. you trade on Coinbase, it might be you know 10 or 20 basis points 
of fees that go directly to Coinbase. If you trade on a decentralized peer-to-peer protocol, well, that 10 to 20 basis points or more or less, uh, depending on the rule of the system, that might go to the protocol itself. So then who owns the protocol is this token holder? So it's, that, there, there are these you know, really exotic designs, but the, but the easiest way to think about DeFi tokens in general, they're kind of like uh, synthetic securities. That's uh, instead of giving you access to a company's cash flows, give you access to the protocol's cash flows, in addition to some voting control over how those protocols are operated over time and what the rules of the game are, even though they are period. And and is that essentially what staking is? Because you also had some comments on staking in your in your crypto thesis. You were uh, saying that I guess we have to live with these oligarchies for a while. And and what you're referring to there is that the biggest exchanges and players in the market are now, well, some of them uh, put the governance into foundations, right? So there's Bitcoin mm-hmm. Foundation, Ethereum Foundation. But there are efforts, like uh, you know, for uh, to create other types of more token-based governance structures. Uh, that's how I understand staking. Uh, explain the motivation behind, and what's going to actually happen in these sort of staking efforts. What what is it that they're trying to accomplish? Credibility, or or uh, kind of like board seats governance over their own process to convince the SEC. Like, what is the motivation behind these staking efforts of Oh, players like Zilliqa or, 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 or others? Well, it, it's maybe a more liquid form of, of governance, right? I mean, it's, it's very Wild West. You know, you're kind of combining finance and philosophy and, and you know, maybe a little bit of law, but for the most part, it's, uh, it, it's a Wild West. And people are kind of yep. making this up and running experiments as we go along. Um, you know, perfect example, go back to Uniswap. Um, Uniswap spent the past three years building out one of the largest decentralized exchange ecosystems in the world. Just in the last week, there was an initiative uh, that was largely successful to siphon off most of the value in uh, the Uniswap market makers to a totally separate ecosystem called SushiSwap. Because why not? Right? It's crypto. It's all just fun game. But this, uh, this, you know. I don't want to call it a joke because it's quite serious, um, but, but SushiSwap was able to siphon off hundreds of millions of dollars, I think up to $800 million in value that had previously been Uniswap market makers into a completely uh, parallel version of Uniswap that is maybe now a more liquid. Uh, I've been checked for the last few hours. could be more liquid than the original. And they were able to do so because they created a governance token that essentially gave anyone providing liquidity different sets of rights uh, to protocol fees and governance and, and kind of stake rewards and actually allow them to earn much more money than they were otherwise. Now, Uniswap might turn around in a couple of weeks and have their own token. and We could go back and forth, but um, the liquidity of these systems basically means that, um, you know, you either need to have a, a missionary community that uh, is like Bitcoin. It can be very, very difficult to have them you know, kind of move from Bitcoin to another asset. Um, or you need to be prepared to you know, offer the mercenary army the top dollar that's deal. Otherwise, they're just going to migrate to the um, And so that's, and this has been true in, in other you know, bubbles that we've seen you know, in the ecosystem, but um, that is arguably a good thing for um, society because over time, those fees are going to be competed away and, and the cost of these services is going to be a lot lower in, in 10 years, 15 years. Sending money, you're creating, uh, 
peer-to-peer lending product across you know, international boundaries might be an order of magnitude cheaper, uh, faster than today using traditional rails. You know, it strikes me as you're talking that some of the companies you're mentioning, right, they will kind of go into history as only special interest. Uh, other uh, other of them, you know, will become the Facebooks and the Googles of uh, of the next decade. If you think about the current successes and failures and and already the ones that will be remembered, what are some of the successes and what are some of the failures that you already can guarantee me will go into the history books uh, you know, in the same way that uh, perhaps some of the early e-commerce players that went bust you know, will go into history or, or players that you think really are going to become uh, you know, the Amazon and Googles and Microsofts of the next decade. So are you talking about uh, specific projects, companies, or both? Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe you can just structure it a little bit for uh, for for my listeners. I mean, the exchanges are definitely famous. Uh, the, some of the currencies, obviously, the at least the top two three are are very uh, you know have bigger brand names that extend the crypto world because you kind of interact with them. But a lot of the other companies and the kind of the the uh, players that you talk about don't have any of that name recognition outside the space. So I'm just trying to get your take on, um, <laughs> and to your point about sushi swap. I mean, the community is not doing itself any favors in terms of trying to convince. And I was thinking of uh, your famous uh, fall guy over here in your thesis. You know, Brad Sherman, the Democratic senator from. The 30th district in California, who, you know, is I would call it slightly critical of of, of this entire phenomenon, and people like that are not going to be convinced by brand names such as SushiSwap. So, give me a sense of how you know the traditional finance and regulatory world is going to view this community looking back. Well, you know, I think the good news is no one that's participating in DeFi will carry Brad Sherman things because it's 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 going to take you know years for, for them to catch up from a regulatory standpoint, from a legislative standpoint. It, DC is still grappling with, and, and you know, globally, they're still grappling with the implications of Bitcoin. Right? And, hmm. and in many cases, they've shifted their attention to think of, okay, how can we think about central bank digital currencies and kind of leverage all of these innovations uh, that, that Bitcoin has proven are possible to you know, create better versions of our, our own digital dollars. Um, and in the meantime, let's make sure that we you know, rein in money laundering and tax evasion, all of those kind of evil things that critics of, of cryptocurrency like to tout as the primary in these cases. Even though that's demonstrably not true. Um, so you know we've got to the point where like Bitcoin is the adult in the room, but there's no leader, so it, it creates um, it, it, it's, yeah. it's maybe a, a blessing in disguise that because there is no leader. Uh, because there is no kind of central coordinating body uh, for Bitcoin, the uh, the opportunity for uh, other groups to bring their own diverse perspectives about how this should be regulated, what it means, what it could be used for. Um, on the one hand, it creates a certain amount of confusion, but on the other, kind of reinforces the narrative that this is like the internet, you know, the same way that you wouldn't have wanted to regulate the existence of the internet or the way that you know packets. Information moves around. Um, you arguably want to kind of apply the same standards to the currency. 
Um, but I think, um, you know, in terms of attracting outside interest, this yeah. happens in cycles because Ethereum, I would say, is now relatively mainstream. But right. in 2015, 2016, Ethereum was just this crazy project that the Bitcoin was doing, right? And so now DeFi is just, you know, this crazy project that the Ethereum folks And, you know, at some point there, there will be another version of that um, or multiple versions of it. You wrote somewhere that uh, uh, you were referring an article that said that understanding crypto economics is a little bit uh, like alchemy or, or perhaps moving into kind of proto-science. It's like this pre-scientific stage in development where a lot of people are dismissing it, even though the people involved in the community are well-meaning, they can't fully convince the rest because they're sort of still in the imaginary experimental stages and they're playing with elements that they don't fully understand. Would you say that that's still a fair characteristic? Uh, I would. I think if I have written anything uh, that sounds like that, I, it was probably a direct quote from Meltem, uh, fellow MIT uh, alumnus. So Meltem uh, Demirs, I think, have written a full post on that. Maybe that's who you're thinking of, because I know you know Meltem as well. Um, but it's certainly something that I shared and agree with. Um, and, uh, and look, that's, uh, you know, the truth is we're not going to know if this is, uh, new science or alchemy, uh, for another decade <laughs> or, 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 or at least, you know, until, you know, we, we do risk, uh, some elements of, of you know, cryptocurrencies in general. Um, it could right. end up that this is all just, uh, a, an experiment in alchemy and, uh, you can't break the fractional reserve banking system and, and with it, you can't really build any other. Uh, applications, you know, on top of it. But I, I would find that um, incredibly improbable at this point. Now that the genie's out of the bottle, and so much is already. What are the biggest surprises you've had over the last year when it comes to your field? Um, honestly, it's such a tough question because I, I've been around for uh, long enough. To say honestly that nothing surprises me, <laughs> you know, like, uh, I, I I think I think my, my first and that's kind of embedded in this insanity thing. Like you you basically factored in insanity, so you, your scale is way off. Basically. Yeah, I mean I I factored in insanity, and the, and the other thing you got to remember is you know I got into this industry full seven years ago full time, not like dabbling, but like actually full time. And you know at that point you could have fit um, in one classroom. Every single funded entrepreneur that was building cryptocurrency applications, Coinbase was four people. Circle was three or four people at the time. They hadn't even publicly launched yet. Um, the you know, biggest exchange in the world was Malcox, and went bankrupt like six months later. So um, the, uh, the 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 length that we've come in that amount of time, uh, to the extent that you know thousands, tens of thousands uh, of developers and entrepreneurs are building around these protocols. Um, means that there's going to be some really exciting uh, applications. There's going to be some really scamming projects and fly-by-night operations. And yeah. um, and then there's going to be some things that sound really cool that end up just being batshit crazy and vice versa. So uh, I, I I don't too often get surprised anymore uh, by, by things that happen in this industry, truthfully. Um, just kind of try to take it in stride. Wow. 
Well, you you do uh, you did say that, that we've reached a point in this kind of global macro currency narrative that will make or break Bitcoin in the next cycle. Would would you say Bitcoin is being uh, made or break uh, broken in in twenty twenty? I think um, if if there's flights to liquidity and safety, everything goes risk off, including gold. We saw that. In, in, in previous you know, liquidity crunches, uh, we saw that in March again. Um, but in an environment where deficits are sky high, global governments are, are printing with reckless abandon, where you know, I have a theory that like modern monetary theory works as long as people don't actually talk about it as policy. Um, and now that it's being like talked about as policy, it, it's, you know, uh, it's, it's kind of like the cat. And, and now you're looking at it and maybe the cat's actually dead in the box because you've opened the box. Before you didn't really know if it was alive or dead, um, and uh, and and because we are now targeting excess inflation and now targeting you know kind of never-ending uh, deficit spending at uh, subsequently higher record levels, um, if Bitcoin does not thrive in that environment, then I think it probably has a, a pretty lengthy, um, maybe even terminal um, value as, as a project and maybe something that serves it. But I, I find it very, very difficult to believe that that's going to be the end case. And I'm obviously invested in the outcome of which it ultimately replaces gold. Um, and over the course of the next decade, chips away at uh, gold's preeminence as a store of value. So um, this is, you know, this is not at all different from a gold bug's investment thesis. Like why would you hoard this thousands year old commodity uh, if not for the fact that you are very, very skeptical of the health? You know, I, I find that an interesting thesis, Ryan. Uh, I, I did notice that you know you were emphasizing gold and and, and Bitcoin. I, I do think that in an unprecedented economic environment, which the entire world is is finding itself right now, I would say um, there definitely you know there initially there was a flight into technology right on the stock market, uh, and then I guess the extreme version of that would be a flight into crypto as a hedge. I guess on everything else that's happening in the market. So that's your thesis. What are some of the other disruptive forces that you yourself find will shape the crypto space in kind of the in the time ahead? So we've talked a little bit about regulation. You don't seem very optimistic on the U.S. moving very fast. There, it's it's kind of surprising, right? That the U.S., which is fairly deregulated in many other tech fields, and really has left tech companies alone and in fact fostered them and let them do a lot until they become behemoths, that it wouldn't foster the same kind of innovation in this space is almost unfathomable. And I guess you have to know a lot about the history of, I guess, interests in the financial industry and how they have, you know, I guess, depended a little bit on policymaking to, to, you know, for, for their meteoric rise over 200 or more years uh, in order to explain that, it's just actually almost I- impossible to explain why this particular type of innovation wouldn't fall into the category of supported innovation. Uh, w- what is your take on how other and why other jurisdictions have been much more permissive? Well, I, I think a, a, a large chunk of it has to do with you know the dollar's reserve status, um, and you know, look when uh, when the internet was built and the initial killer application was. Uh, you know, information dissemination and, and email. Um, 
no one really, you know, cared uh, about disruption of the postal service. It's not, it's, it's not like the end all and be all for, for, for the U.S. government. Um, when you're talking about disrupting the U.S. dollar or, or displacing, you know, national government's role in managing our money supply or, or giving an alternative that, that could route around them, um, that I think is an entirely different story. So you're not, you're, you're talking about the difference between the viability and kind of health and ultimate control over the entire banking and financial system, money system, not just in the U.S., but internationally, and um, and something which is you know just kind of improving information flows. The nice thing about America is that the First Amendment is you know, one of the cornerstones of of the country. You know the the internet's rise uh, in America, you know, probably mirrored uh, in, in many respects the ethos of the First Amendment. It, it, it certainly had other hurdles in other regions of the world. Obviously, China and the firewall, um, but uh, many other countries with similar structures, and even you know in Europe, um, we've seen with um, uh, some of the more recent you know legislation. You know, it, the internet has different restrictions that, that it didn't you know uh, 10, 20 years ago. Um, I think you know, the U.S. is still kind of unique in that regard. That we're just only starting to crack down, not even on the internet, but on certain private companies. Um, and, uh, and and I think uh, crypto is probably going to be a little different because if you've seen the countries that have kind of embraced it the most in the West, you know, it's Portugal, and France, and some of the healthier economies in the Eurozone that um, don't stand to lose nearly as much if another reserve asset starts to eat away at the dollar's you know, reserve status. Um, uh, or another type of asset. It, it doesn't even need to be uh, you know, dollar pay or stable asset like we saw with the Libra proposal. Right. So uh, I, you know, I generally think that uh, you know, the leadership in the U.S. will use any opportunity to, to pummel Mark Zuckerberg and, and big tech companies at this point from a narrative standpoint. Uh, so you know, to the extent that they want to take all the arrows. Uh, for their own crypto projects and, and the rest of the ecosystem hides in sight that's probably a Interested. Interesting. Um, so what I was interested in now, I, th- I think, is you know to talk about the innovations that are going on in the crypto space currently. So you know we have mentioned a, a bunch of different projects and, and different kind of business models in the crypto space, but if you think about the kinds of innovation, not just the companies, but you know, definitely, you know, w- w- what are you tracking at the moment, and what sorts of innovations are you excited about in the community in the time ahead? Well, I, I think everything that's happening in DeFi um, is fascinating, and, and I think a number of those applications are, are going to be you know, meaningful for years and decades to come. Um, what I would compare it to is the ICO boom in 2017. Uh, you know, ICO, 99% of ICOs were wildly, wildly overvalued. Um, not at least 90% were outright garbage. But the, the ability to do a, uh, a crowd sale in public ways using these smart contracts was an incredibly powerful concept. That you knew uh, would be replicated to, to greater effects um, and you know kind of longer term you know, positive effects in the future. 
I'd say the same thing is probably true with uh, two areas of crypto today. Uh, the first is DeFi, which we spent a bit of time talking about. Um, and then you know, the other is probably in, um, in decentralized autonomous organizations or DAOs. Um, basically, uh, how do you use tokens and voting rights associated with those tokens to allocate capital for you know, different public goods? Uh, or, or, or public projects that are managed. In crypto's case, the early use cases of this are going to be how do you best allocate capital around building and maintaining public crypto protocols, open source, open source software, but there's no reason that that couldn't ultimately be applied to things like uh, venture capital or, or, or decentralizing asset management um, or uh, you know, any number of applications that we might not be able to think about today, but ultimately um, would, uh, would uh, you know, benefit from having a faster moving, more dynamic and, and more financially aligned uh, system of governance, not necessarily at a national level, but you know, for, for some processes or group or someone. So Ryan, wh- what about the potential of fractionalized ownership of infrastructure? <clears throat> because, uh, I, and I know you weren't that positive about real estate in this context, because you, I don't think you, in, at least uh, December, you, you hadn't seen a lot of use cases for it, even though on paper, it sounds like a great idea. In fact, I have a guest coming on soon who's trying to do this for, for uh, real estate in various uh, markets. But fractionalized ownership of infrastructure wouldn't that, in some way, solve the common, the tragedy of the commons, or you know, the problem that we don't, we all need it, but we don't feel like we have a bit of it, even though we are part of a government where we're, that owns, you know, the asset in some way. Um, isn't there a way that crypto can engage on some of these commons areas where where there's massive? I mean owning the world's oceans or, you know, uh, areas of <clears throat> our economy that still haven't really been fully understood as assets. W- what is the transformative potential there for various kind of crypto schemes that could uh, assign some sort of trading value to these things? I, I think it's huge. I think, uh, you know, maybe one non-crypto native example you could look at um, are uh, carbon credits. Right and, and yes. credit uh, trading, um, those you know really only exist and have economic value based on different government programs and, and, and specific policies and restrictions. But um, you could apply that to you know public parks. You could apply that to other public infrastructure. Uh, you know, uh, and and I don't think that there should necessarily. I don't. I don't think that's at odds with you know governmental goals. You know, in fact, you know, if you were to privatize, and, and this is maybe more libertarian, I don't want to get too political because people are you know, going to jump, jump down my throat, but um, I can make the argument that privatizing you know, large swaths of, of public infrastructure and, um, and you know, basically incentivizing, you know, private companies to rebuild, you know, roads, bridges, you know, at a more cost-effective basis would be uh, one of the most powerful things the government just to get out of its own way and, and actually allow some of these problems to get solved. But uh, I, I think, you know, uh, optimistically, I do think that we'll see more public-private partnerships uh, in the future like that. Crypto can certainly be a, uh, a helpful facilitator. Um, in the meantime, those experiments probably happen in countries not in the U.S. 
that are smaller that are more active. No, I, I I understand that, but I'm just saying, you know, think about the power of just saying, well, you know, let's let's have the U.S. highway system be owned by you know 500,000 token owners. I mean, yeah, I mean when well, are we I mean, going to see that happen? Yeah, well, this this is already happening, right? Uh, I think you know there there's some interstates and uh, and parking garages that are, that are owned by the Chinese and the, and the Saudis. And the well, that's funny but, you say that. So I mean, some of these things are thing. actually happening yeah. under different names. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Oh. Exactly. Uh, well, so, so two bit idiot, um, is your, uh, is your blog where you have daily news on, on this market. What, what, what's been happening to the interest around the Bitcoin industry? Would you say that your subscribers have changed in demographics lately, or is it the same people that are interested? Uh, so I, I don't. Uh, my my Twitter handle is uh, is, is Jubit Idiot. That's uh, a relic of what I thought was going to be a throwaway account name for Reddit uh, back in the day um, when I was afraid to use my real name. Uh, what den of thieves I was, you know, kind of falling into early on. Still, but career rest in it. In it, in it um, but uh, all of my uh, now very limited writing, because for the most part, we have a really strong team that's, that's doing that day in, day out, um, is happening under the Masari umbrella. So, this is Masari.io. It's not a newsletter. You know, we've got yep. uh, pro subscriptions that's uh, $30 a month. We have daily insights and really long form research. Um, but um, for the most part, I'd say you know we as a company uh, cater to uh, individual professionals, right? So the the I think very often you know entrepreneurs in this industry can get way ahead of themselves and don't appreciate the market cycles that, that, that crypto goes through. Um, I've been around a couple of these market cycles, and, and so what we said is you know we're not going to go from 2017, which was retail trader euphoria. To mm-hmm. JP Morgan, you know, offering soup to nuts crypto services in four years. There's going to have to be a middle ground where individual professionals at JP Morgan fall down the rabbit hole. They become net promoters. They either kind of build teams and kind of core infrastructure internally, or they get fed up with the bureaucracy. They leave. And we've seen this rotation for years and years now. Um, and so those individuals that will ultimately be the you know the purchasers for enterprise products um, are you know the ones that we ultimately cater to today. And those could be individual traders that have made a decent amount of money and, and can actively trade their own personal book. It could be uh, dedicated funds uh, that are specific to crypto. It could be the exchanges within the industry, or it could be um, those uh, kind of leads or, or, or crypto liaisons, I guess, for the, the old stodgy Fortune 500 that are tasked with figuring this out. Hmm. Interesting. Um, in your crypto thesis, you uh, advised the readers on kind of the, I think you had the 10 influencers that you feel matter the most in the space. Um, I wanted to ask you how you stay up to date yourself and who you recommend who or what sources, uh, you know, obviously Masari is going to be linked up here uh, as a, a very fundamental source for, for the developments in, in this environment. But maybe you can just comment on who are, well, who are the other analysts that matter in the crypto space right now, apart from Masari? 
And also, what are the influencers? And maybe don't don't give me ten, but give me the top three aside from yourself who are actively having an influence in this community. It could be, uh, you know, these uh, famous originators and uh, kind of founders of, of of new things that are continually spinning up new concepts, or it could be somebody uh, more on the media side who you respect and who understands or is starting to kind of develop a little bit of a of a following. Um, of this industry? Uh, so in terms of you know, information that we curate right, from, from third-party sources, um, you know, we, we think that um, the Coinmetrics team does a really good job with uh, kind of understanding what's actually going on on these blockchains uh, and, and these ecosystems because they've just um, spun up infrastructure for dozens of, of public protocols and, and they synthesize all the information happening on uh, available on chain, package it in a way that's a little bit more digestible, human-readable language. Um, we do the same with markets data with a company called Tyco uh, that has really good in-depth order book uh, information. So that's probably on like the data and kind of synthesis uh, elements. Um, in terms of news, uh, Coindesk, uh, which I helped restructure, uh, continues to be a market leader. Um, another uh, you know, pretty good uh, news outlet is uh, Block, and um, and then you know really the the top analysts and, and researchers throughout the industry tend to be uh, individuals uh, versus companies and kind of corporate brands. Uh, there are very few kind of research companies that have cachets. It's all kind of individuals, and these could be you know individual researchers at, at some of the top funds. Uh, some of the top crypto companies, uh, they sometimes are pseudonymous uh, and, and don't even uh, you know, have a, a real kind of personal uh, reputation outside of their kind of Twitter handle, which is, you know, by the way, that's how I started and not uncommon uh, for this industry. So um, it's really all over the, all over the map, but uh, you know, I, I also curate a number of Twitter lists just for my own uh, kind of information diet. And, and so folks are- And I'm sure it's not 10. I mean, the number is, yeah, the number is probably much higher than than 10, right? The, the, yeah, the real number of, of people that matter. Yeah, and it, it, it changes uh, pretty pretty rapidly um, because, you know, folks are always rising and falling in this industry and relevance and, and just in terms of kind of the narrative cycle. So, you know, right now, DeFi is obviously going to be a different set of influence. We're really knowledgeable about that. I think our team's done a, uh, a terrific job and reflected in our numbers the last couple of months. But, um, uh, you know, the, tomorrow there's going to be another cycle and we don't know what it's going to be. But uh, I'm sure you know, influencers and, and good thinkers are going to come up there as well. Well, Ryan, tomorrow there's going to be another cycle. What What are you on to next? Are you deep into Masari or do you have uh, five other projects that you're working on on the side? I mean, is there time for anything uh, to get engaged in for uh, on your end, uh, even outside of the, this crypto space? Or what, what are you up to? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm... Obviously, this is a public channel, so it's things that you can share. No, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very boring. I mean, it seems like I've done a lot in the industry, but it's more just the length of time that I've been around, you know. Uh, it's a couple of years restructuring CoinDesk, a couple of years building out you know, my own personal persona and digital currency group. Um, and, um, and then it's been you know, coming up on three years now uh, building the foundation for Sorry. So um, 
I think uh, our team's great. At some point, uh, I might make myself redundant uh, because the company's outgrown me. But we'll 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 see how I scale how the company scales. And, uh, right now, all of my attention is on. Yeah, no, that I understand. But I was more trying to get inside of Ryan uh, Ryan Selkis's head, you know, what, because you you were so early into this space. So of course, the natural question is, you know, for a person like you, are are you sort of thinking that this entire space is going to be, uh, you know, a place for you in the, in the long term, or uh, or are there complete different spaces that the knowledge from what you have learned here can be applied. I mean, it was more of an open question. I don't oh, sure. Know yeah, ma- yeah. Made, um, made that sort of assumption. No, I think, um, uh, I, I honestly, I don't know if I'm hireable or employable. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 you, you, you've taken on insanity. This is the metaphor that, we're going to be yeah, using. Yeah, so. that, that, you know, taking on insanity, you know, I've, I've, I've also been you know, independent for, I think for too long. Um, uh, too many things have gone right, uh, and you know I, I've gotten to the point where I don't know where I don't know uh, what I don't know about the you know, more traditional spaces. So uh, the good news is, well, you, you could retire and smoke cigars. I mean, there's uh, there's a merit to that too. I, I need to be able to escape the madness of having three three boys under the age of four. So I'll keep working for a long time, regardless of what happens. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah. you know. I, Look, it's uh, the, the good news for anybody is um, crypto is a, a meritocracy, and because it is fully open, um, this is probably the first trend in you know, a couple of decades since the early internet, where anyone could get involved at any moment and develop a, a, a niche. You write about that niche and its potential growth prospects, add value, and ultimately survive life. Um, so, uh, you know, on, on the internet, no one knows your ref, uh, refrigerator. In, in, in crypto, no one knows that you're an idiot unless you tell them. Which, you know, I outed myself early on uh, and got over that hurdle. Seems to have worked for you, Ryan. Well, that's great advice. Uh, I, I hope some of the listeners out there are getting, uh, you know, inspired by this because your story is uh, fascinating and uh, you are a big resource to this very nascent community. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. You have just listened to episode 41 of the Futurized podcast with hosts Trond Arne Undheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of cryptocurrency. Our guest was Ryan Selkis, founder and CEO of Masari, the crypto economy analyst firm. In this conversation, we talked about cryptocurrency in its simplest terms. What is the next step in terms of adoption and where are we going in the next decade? My takeaway is that the future of cryptocurrency is of such transformational character that the global economy is likely to change forever as a result. The only question is the speed of adoption and the important regional differences in terms of speed of adoption, government models and the new emerging powerhouses. If Ryan Selkis is right, Bitcoin will take on aspects that make it similar in function to the gold standard. These are earth-shattering predictions indeed. Combine that with the fact that volatility will continue to be high for some time to come. How to prepare for a period where stability includes volatility. If this comes to pass, entire economic paradigms will get smothered. Thanks for listening. 
If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.